As uh, Dan mentioned earlier, I just have a few announcements um, that I want to tell you all about with our summer camp that we attended uh, last week in North Carolina. So we got back on uh, July the 8th. We left on the 1st, um, and we had a really good week. Um, while we were there, the teaching was, it was excellent. Uh, the theme of the week, or actually the focus of the week, the theme they said is always Jesus. So the focus of the week was um, hope. And that's kind of, for me, as, we've, as I've listened to that for a week, we went to nine sermons and then four breakout sessions. So all focused on Jesus as the hope. So as we've listened to that, um, that's kind of where I'm, I'm at right now with this message that I've prepared this morning. Um, like I said, we had a great week. The students, they learned a lot. And then uh, we had a student as well um, come to faith this week, which was amazing. Um, it was a lot of work to go down there, and that makes it all worth it. And uh, then we had one of our students named Johanna. She's serving there for the summer. She uh, got baptized while we were there. And then Brittany Boyd, uh, who's one of our leaders here at The Rock, she was also baptized there. She felt really convicted about not being baptized, and uh, she, she called her parents and, and let them know, and she was baptized as well. And it was just an exciting week to see how God was working in these people's lives and in the lives of our students and, and in the lives of our leaders. So as we come back now, um, we don't want to just leave our students to just be out for the whole summer and we don't teach or do anything anymore. So this summer, we're going to be continuing off where we left from Snowbird, talking about hope. And we're actually going to be working through Hebrews 11 together. Um, and we're doing that at our firesides. And so... We still need somebody to host a fireside this Friday. Um, all it is is if you could have a fire in your backyard, you don't have to provide any food, any drinks. The kids all bring that. You don't even have to provide chairs. Um, we just need a place to hang out, and we're going to do a Bible study and then just spend time around the fire with one another. So that would be at 6.30. If you have any questions, please let me know. As we begin this morning, um, I would like to open with a word of prayer, and then we'll start. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word. Lord, we're thankful that we know that you use it to work in our hearts and our lives to make us more like you. Lord, this morning as we open it, I pray that first we would see more about who you are. We would understand uh, you more. And secondly, that you would change us to be more like you. Use this word in a powerful way. In your name, amen. A man approached a, a Little League baseball game one afternoon. He asked a boy in the dugout what the score was. The boy responded, 18 to nothing. We're behind. <laughs> boy, said the spectator, I bet you're discouraged. Why? Why should I be discouraged, replied the little boy. We haven't even gotten up to bat yet. That boy definitely has a lot of hope in, in his teammates and in their ability to get some points, doesn't he? He hopes that when they get up to bat, everything's going to change, the score is going to even out, they can come back and win the game. But that hope seems a little bit far-fetched. We all have hopes like this, though, don't we? Maybe we hope to travel around the world. Maybe we hope for fame. Maybe we hope for fortune. Maybe for happiness or for good health, or for peace. Maybe we hope for certain outcomes, like our favorite sport team wins, or 
that a certain political party wins the next election. These are hopes that we all have. But when Hebrews 11 is speaking about hope, it's talking about a different kind of hope. This isn't the same kind of, I hope it's going to happen in terms of, this is the outcome that I desire, but it's not a guarantee. It's up in the air. No, the, the hope that the author of Hebrews is talking about, it's a guaranteed hope. And this morning, we're going to go through Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 16, and examine this hope that we have. So together, um, if you're able to, I ask you to stand, and we're going to read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gift, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he, would not, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he reward those, rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah being warned by God, Concerning the events yet unseen, was reverent in fear, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he, he was commended and became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was not that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in a land of promise, as in a, land, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him to the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that had foundations, whose, builder and design, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man... And him, and him as good as dead, was born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as, and as innumerable grains, as, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died by faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For God, who, sp who, who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they have been thinking, that, thinking of that land from which they have gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to, to be called their God, and he has prepared for them a city. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When I got to uh, English class in high school, I learned that 
the way I was writing essays and paragraphs in my essays and making arguments was all wrong. My teachers throughout high school, um, and some of you might know this, if you're a student now, you've probably heard this in a different way, have, been told, have continued to tell me that to structure my argument, I needed to have a point, a proof, and then an explanation. So first I needed to make a point, a statement or a claim. For example, when the grass is green, it's alive. Then, I needed to provide some kind of proof to that point. I can't just make a statement without backing it up. And so, you could, you could start to bring in some science maybe about why grass turns green, show that how through water and sun the grass becomes green and without it, it's brown and dead. And then finally, you need to have this explanation really as to why it's important. Why does this matter? And so, for example, you're saying, well, if living grass is green, then that means that dead grass is brown. So whenever we made an argument, we always had to use point, proof, explanation. And today, as we look at this passage, the author of Hebrews seems to be doing the same thing. In verses 1 to 3, he gives us the point. In verses 4 to 12, he gives us some proof to back up the point that he just made. And then in verses 11, or sorry, chapter 11, verses 13 to 16, we have the explanation, the reason why he's telling us these things. And so let's start by looking at the point. Verses 1 to 3. So verses 1 to 3 said, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The author here gives us two definitions of what faith is. The first one, both of them are found in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And secondly, it is the conviction of things not seen. That is what faith is. And so I want to start by looking at that second definition quickly. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. And, and the word that is translated conviction, it's a really hard word to translate. And the King James Version actually translates it the evidence of things not seen. And it seems like the, the translators for the ESV and the NIV and, and some of those other newer translations we've kind of moved away from that word because it doesn't really make sense. How can faith be evidence? That Normally you want evidence for your faith, right? But verse 3, if you go down to verse 3, it actually makes the point that faith is evidence. And it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Here the author tells us that the world, everything that we can see, was created by the word of God, something that we can't see. And we're told that we believe this by faith. Think about it. How do we know that God made the world by his word out of nothing? Were we there? Were you there? No. Was anyone there? And, and even if we were there, could you see the word of God? 
You can't see the word of God. It's by faith that we believe that the word of God made everything. We believe that God made everything that is seen out of, out of what's unseen. And do we have evidence to support this? Well, yes, we do. Creation, what is seen, points back to the word of God as creator. When we look at everything that's around us, we see God as creator. That's the evidence that God, what is unseen, made all things. The, the beauty, we were just in the mountains in Tennessee, the Smoky Mountains, and it is beautiful. When you're up on the mountaintop and we went up for the sunset, and you see the sun setting over the hills, and the, the Smoky Mountains, they literally are, fo there's fog just coming up, and it looks like there's just smoke coming all over the place, and it's gorgeous. It points to God. When you're out in the middle of the ocean, if some of you have been there, and you can see forever and ever, and, and it points to, to God being the creator. When you're in the middle of nowhere and you look up and you see the vast expanse of the universe and there's stars and the longer you look, the more stars you can see. And it just points to God as creator. See, the things that we see point to an unseen creator. As a, and as an analogy, this morning we heard Jeff play the guitar. Could you see the sound coming from the guitar? No. So how did you know that the sound came from the guitar? Because you saw Jeff playing the guitar, and so by faith that you believe that the sound came from the guitar. The faith is the evidence. And this is the evidence that the author is talking about. We see visible creation, which is evidence of our faith that the creator created all things through the word. Therefore, faith is evidence. Now, we're also told that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And at a very simple and basic level, this is, this is awesome. It's so true that faith is this deep confidence in the promises of God. And that's what we hope for, the promises of things to come. But Again, I love the word that the King James uses here, and it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Substance. This goes farther than just a mere confidence. John Piper puts it this way, faith is a spiritual apprehending or perceiving or tasting or sensing of the beauty and sweetness and preciousness and goodness of what God promises, especially his own fellowship and the enjoyment of his, own fellow, of his own presence. In other words, faith doesn't just produce confidence, but it gives us such a hope that we can taste and we can see it. It's this hope that we know it's coming. We, we can feel it. We, we just know what, what's there, and we have a little taste of it, and we can't wait for it. See, this is very different than a lot of our other hopes. Hopes like the Leafs will win the cup this year. <laughs> this is a hope that we can be 100% sure is going to happen. Because we know that the battle's been won. We know that God doesn't go back on his word. We know he keeps his promises. We know that this will happen and nothing can ever change or make that, this hope disappear. It's a guaranteed hope. 
and out of every hope in this world, this is the only hope that we can count on and trust on indefinitely. Most of us drove here this morning. Who for a second, when they pushed on the brake pedal, thought, I really hope these brakes work this time? Probably none of us. We have faith that our brakes will work every time we push on the pedal, and for most of us, that's, that's been the case every time we've driven the car, right? The, you push on the pedal, on the brake pedal, the brakes work properly, and we stop. We have a confident hope in our brakes. But honestly, and I'm not trying to scare anyone, there is a chance that your brakes won't work. It's mechanical failure. It's, it's not a perfect system, right? But this hope that we have in God, there's no chance it's going to fail. No matter how much confidence you put in it, there's no chance it's going to fail. But what exactly is this hope that, that the author is talking about? If you could turn with me quickly to 1 Peter Chapter 1 and verse 3 is where I'll start reading. Verse 3 to 5. And this hope is ultimately in the promises of God. And it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the hope that we have. It's a hope that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It's a hope that Jesus rose again from the grave, defeating sins. It's a hope that Jesus is going to return. It's a hope that one day he will defeat sin once and for all. It's a hope that pain will be no more someday. A hope that one day we will be joined as fellow heirs with Christ in heaven. A hope that one day we will go to heaven. A hope that we're going to be made right with God so that we can continually praise his name forever and ever. And this is our hope, and it's a glorious hope. We know that we receive this hope through faith in Jesus Christ. When we believe in the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that's the gospel. When we believe those things, that's when we receive this hope. And so verse 2 tells us that those in the past received their hope through this same faith as well. Faith in God. Faith in his promises of what was to come. So now let's look at some evidence. I've made the point, or... Really, the author of Hebrews has made his point. Now let's prove it. And to give proof, he goes back and he gives five examples of faith um, from people in the Old Testament. And these are stories that you probably know, you've probably heard of. And personally, when I start reading through them and you start hearing these stories, your mind just goes back and remembering what's happened. But it's even better to go back and read them for yourselves. And we don't have time today to go back and read every story, but I'd encourage you to do that on your own time sometime this week. Um, it's just amazing when you see the faith of these people. And as a side note, um, I just want to point out a quick study thing. When you see a word or two words or a phrase that's repeated over and over and over again, that's the author trying to get your attention. He wants you to notice something. And so you probably heard it while I was reading these two words, by faith. They're repeated in verse 3, 4, 5, 
7, 8, and 11. So six times in this short period. And then after verse 16, he does it again. More, more by faith, by faith, by faith. So he's trying to get our attention with what's being said here. He's trying to show you, look at this faith. So I'm just going to reread verse 4, and we'll start with the first example, which is the faith of Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Here we're reminded of this amazing faith that happens with Abel in Genesis chapter 4. So if you remember, uh, the fall has just happened, the previous chapter in chapter 3. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, and two of their sons now, Cain and Abel, um, we kind of skip and move on to their story. And we're told that Cain worked the soil and that Abel kept flocks. And over the course of time, it says, they both brought forth offerings. And so Cain came up and offered some fruit. And Abel offered up the firstborn of the flock in its fat portions. And the fat portions are considered to be the best part of the animal. Abel's sacrifice was then considered acceptable, and Cain's was not. But why? Well, the reason is how they offered their sacrifice. It's, it's because of their faith. It was by faith that Abel gave God the best of what he had. The firstborn, the fat portions. He gave them the best. And we don't know exactly what Cain gave. All it says is that he gave some of his fruit. There's no mention as to the amount, what time in the harvest it was, or the quality of the fruit that he gave. But what we do know is that he didn't give it by faith. By faith, Abel gave God the best of what he had. And it's this faith that pleased God, not the offering. God was pleased with, with Cain's sacrifice, or sorry, with Abel's sacrifice because of his faith, not because of what he gave. Abel's sacrifice was done by faith and faith alone, and that's why it was accepted. And the author of Hebrews is arguing that that because he completed the sacrifice by faith and because of the hope that he had, that's why he did this. That he had this faith because of the hope he had in the promises of God. And so he completed the sacrifice. As we continue down, we see verses 5 and 6. There's a man named Enoch, and I'll read that again. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We really, uh, we don't know much about Enoch. And so for us, it kind of seems, why is he making such a big deal about a guy that we know so little about? I'll read to you what we know about Enoch. And it's found in Genesis chapter 5 verses 21 to 24. This is inside the genealogy, and it says, When Enoch was 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, 
for God took him. That's all we know. Not much. And so it does seem weird that we have this, because where's the evidence of this faith? And, and instead, the author of Hebrews gives us the evidence here. And he tells us that Enoch was taken up because he was commended as having pleased God. Now, what the author isn't saying is that everyone who pleases God is going to be taken up and you're not going to have to experience death. You'll just be gone. You will be not, as it said. That's not what he's saying. He makes his point in verse 6 when he says, Now, faith is impossible, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. See, Enoch pleased God by his faith. When he had faith, he walked with God, he followed God. That faith is what pleased God, and that faith is what resulted in this reward that he received to be taken up and not experience death. Instead, he's displaying this amazing faith that Enoch had, specifically that Enoch believed, and it says in verse 6, that, that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's the faith that Enoch had, and that's what, what got him the, uh, the commendation that he received and pleased God. He had incredible faith. That's all we know. If you continue and go to verse 7, we hear about a guy named Noah. You've probably heard of Noah before. And so I'm just going to read verse 7 again. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events yet as yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he, is he, by this he condemned the world and became the heir to the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's story can be found in Genesis chapter 6 to 9. But here's a really brief summary of what happens there. In Genesis chapter 3, as I mentioned before, sin comes into the world. And as you read the first few chapters of Genesis from, from the fall to the time of Noah, you see this downward spiral where humanity is becoming more and more engulfed in their sin and things are becoming worse and worse and worse. It's becoming increasingly corrupt. And so God brings judgment. He decides he's going to bring judgment on the world. But before this judgment is going to happen, he speaks to a man named Noah. And we're told that Noah was a man who walked with God. And God tells Noah that this destruction is going to come, so he needs to build the ark, or a really big boat, right? And he even gives him some specifics on what this thing's going to look like. It's going to be used gopher wood. It's going to have rooms inside of it. Um, it's going to be covered inside and out with pitch. It gives him a length, uh, a birth, and a height. Tells him to have a roof on it and put the door on the side, not on the front or the back. And he tells him to have three decks. That's his instructions. And then he's told to bring his family and two of the animals and a bunch of seeds, or the food, all the different types of food on, onto this ark with him. And the result would be that he would be saved from the destruction of the flood. And Noah obeyed and his family was saved. This took... Tremendous faith. Think about it this way. According to answers in Genesis, it probably took Noah between 55 and 75 years to make the ark. So we're told that God 
gives a kind of 120 year timeline in chapter three verse or chapter six verse three. There's like a 120 year countdown until the flood's going to come. And then during that time, he talked to Noah after his sons. And by the time he starts actually building the ark and gets the instructions, it's about 55 to 75 years. That's a long period of time. And during this time, he's building a giant boat in a landlocked area. That would be ridiculous. If you built a huge boat, like hundreds of feet by hundreds of feet in your backyard, people would laugh at you. Because how are you going to move it? It looked ridiculous. He would have faced so much ridicule for that. Not to mention, he had to get the materials. It doesn't say God provided all the gopher wood. It was just stacked up neatly and ready to go, and he just had to put it together. No, he had, would have had to go and get the materials to build this thing. And that would have either cost him some of his possessions or a bunch of time, or both. It's a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of expense. He had to invest everything into this. He had to gather up all this food. Again, time and expense. And hopefully, the instructions that he got of building the boat, he followed them well enough. Because they're, they're, they're pretty specific, but at the same time, they're not. Like, if I was told to build a big ark, and this is all I got, I don't have much to go on. Like, I'd have some more questions on here. What do I need to do? How do I do this? How, like, he doesn't have that much to go on, so he's got bad blueprints. But the result is he believed, he had faith. And even though it cost him so much, he and his family are saved. And that was the result. It was a tremendous show of faith. And, and for that reason, he is mentioned here. His hope was in the salvation that God had promised him from the flood. And by faith, he too is commended and saved. In verses 8 to 10, we see another story about some guy named Abraham. Again, some of you might have heard of him before. Verses 8 to 10, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents as Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that had foundations, whose builder and designer is God. There's so many examples inside the book of Genesis about Abraham's faith. I mean, you can think of three really big ones between this one where he, he goes um, and obeys God. You can think of him with his sons and just the fact that he had Isaac. And then what he does with Isaac offering him as a sacrifice. And so he actually, if you continued on in verse 17, you, can, you would see again more examples of Abraham's faith. But here he just speaks about the first example. Abraham going and leaving. And it's a small picture um, of just some incredible faith. This is just the start of his faith. So we're told that God called Abraham known as Abram at this time. And this is what it says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth shall proceed. So this is what the promise he gets. He says, hey, Abram, go to this country that I'm going to give you, and I'm going to bless you when you go there. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years when he departed from Haran. And Abraham, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So Abram was called by God to just get up and go to a place that he had never seen before in his life because there was a promise of inheritance there for him when he got there. And it wasn't just like some, some young single guy who had to go, you know what, I'm just going to move out there and, and hopefully things go well. I'll get on the plane and I'll see what it's like and hopefully when I get there things are good. If they're not, I'll just come back. It's not that far. No, this is a huge move. He's 75 years old at this time. He has to bring his wife, he brings his brother, he brings his servants, he brings everything he has, all his possessions. And this is the trip of a lifetime, farther than anyone, farther than he's ever traveled before. He's not going back. And he goes out believing the promise that God gave him, the promise of this inheritance to come. He went to a place he's never seen before. And this is a really cool connection back to verse 1 where it talked about um, faith being things of the unseen. Abraham believed that he was going uh, to get an inheritance from something that he had never seen, but his evidence is that, that is the faith, right? As we talked about before. And again, this is just another example of this incredible faith and the hope, and incredible faith in the hope that he had. And the Old Testament is clear that this faith did pay what, it what he was told. He did receive the inheritance he was told he was going to get. He doesn't get into it here um, in this verse, but as you read through Genesis, you see Abraham got what he was promised. God was faithful. Our final example is Sarah, Abraham's wife. And that's found in verses 11 and 12, and it says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This one might seem a little bit surprising to us, especially if you know this story really well. Because remember, Sarah and Abram, so Sarai and Abram at that time, they're changed to Sarah and Abraham. They were told that they were going to have a child, but Sarah didn't believe, so she has Abraham marry his, his servant so that he can have, they can have Ishmael. But God says that Abraham is going to have a child with Sarah. It's going to be that, that's going to be where the promised child comes from. And I just want to read you two little things from Genesis. And um, again, this just, it shows the faith. Like, I don't know how, like, it quest, their questionable faith. It says in Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 to 19, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall be, and she and she shall become nations. Kings and people shall come from her. When Abraham fell on his face, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said to him, 
Shall a child be born of a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him, an everlasting covenant for his offspring with him, after him. So we see here, he doesn't really have this faith that God's going to, he's like, he laughs. God tells him, you're going to have a, a, a son with Sarah, and he laughs. He falls on his face and laughs, and then says, why can't you just take Isaac instead? Or sorry, not Isaac, Ishmael instead. And, and Sarah's response really isn't much different. When you go to chapter 18, verses 9 to 15, she says, and they went, where is Sarah? And, and they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door behind him. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and, many, and, and the way of women had ceased with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord, and my Lord is old, shall I, shall, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abram, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and, share, and Sarah shall receive a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. When we read this, it really doesn't seem like they have much faith. They both laugh at the idea that they're going to have a son. And in hindsight, we're like, well, how could you do that? But if you think about where there are, I mean, I'm pretty sure you, it's safe for me to say here that they were old. A hundred is old. Um, Ninety, you're up there. And I think that, I mean, if, if that's not enough, Hebrews 11 verse 12, if you notice how it describes Abraham, it says he was as good as dead. So that makes you pretty old when the Bible says you're as good as dead. But we know that they had this faith because they received the son of promise. And we're told here that Sarah's faith is what gave them the power to conceive. In this un unpredictable, there's no way this could happen anymore. They were too old for this. But they had a child just like God had promised. And by their faith, they trusted in the hope that this was going to happen. The hope given to them that they would have descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and as immeasurable as the grains of sand by the seashore. And as, if you go back and read the story, you can see that it happens. It does happen. So now it's time for the explanation, verses 13 to 16. Why do we need to know this? What's important for us? Well, let's read that again. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In verse 13, there's a pretty blunt point, and it says, all of these by all of these died in faith, not having seen what they had promised. 
See, these people, they had great faith in God's promises. They put all of their hope in them. And yes, they did see some of their promises. Sarah saw Isaac, right? Abram saw the promised land. Noah made it through the flood, right? These are just some examples. These guys saw some of it. But see, God's promises, they're not mainly of this world. They're of what's to come in the future, in the next, in heaven. These are eternal promises that he made with them. These were just a small taste of what God had planned for them in all eternity. And the eternal hope is about now what they have, the promise that they've seen. This is a lot like us. We can connect with this, can't we? We have hope in the promises of God, what I read in 1 Peter, and the fact that Jesus died, buried, and was rose again, and he's defeated sin on our behalf, and he's returning and coming again. We have hope in those things. And we have seen that a little bit. We have, we have Jesus, we have the Spirit living in our hearts. We, we have this little taste of it. But that's not what the total hope is. The hope is ultimately in what's to come eternally in the future. We believe in a future home. And while we're here, we're just aliens and sojourners who have a brief taste of some of God's promises, but, but haven't seen most of them yet. Just like these these men and women that are described here. Just a brief taste. They're aliens and sojourners. Abraham went to a foreign land. He lived in a tent. He didn't build himself a big palace because that wasn't his home. Verse 14 shows us that some, even though they received some promises here, they were seeking bigger promises. The promises we experience today, like I said, are nothing compared to what's come as we anxiously await them. Verse 15 shows us that the people could have gone, if the people could have gone to some earthly homeland, some earthly promised land, they would have done it. But it didn't satisfy all the promises. No such place existed, so they couldn't go there. They waited. Instead, they lived as foreigners in tents, waiting for the future homeland, because their hope was in a new country. And they, they, they waited for it instead of something that was here in the world. And verse 16 is where it gets really good. Verse 16 tells us something that seems a little strange. It says right in the middle of verse 16, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. God is not ashamed to be called their God. So would the opposite of that mean that God's ashamed to be called someone's God? But we see that God isn't ashamed because he clearly identifies as the God of Abel, the God of Enoch, the God of Noah and Abraham, the God of Sarah, and as you continue, of Jacob and Isaac, the God of Moses, the God of David, right? There's so, he is the God of these peoples. He's not ashamed to be their God. And we want this to be true of us. I know I want this to be true of me. I want God to say, Tyler, I'm not ashamed to be called your God. But what makes this possible? And I think it's right here in the verse. First, they did, the reason that they, God was not ashamed to be called their God is because they desired a better country. A, a heavenly city of promise. Because they desired this heavenly country. And secondly, because God had prepared this heavenly city for them. That's why he's not ashamed to be called their God. So what must we do? I want you to listen to this great quote. It says, we must desire him. 
Desire the city he's made for you. Desire the city of God over the city of man. Desire heaven over earth. Desire God over everything but God. This is what faith is on the inside. Faith desires God and the city of God, the city that God makes for his people more than it desires what the world can give. Faith in God means desiring God. See, another way to say that we're not that God's not ashamed is to say that He's proud. He's proud to call us. He's proud to say that He's our God. So today I want to encourage you to trust in the promises of God that are to come. These aren't as far fetched as the hope that that little league team is coming back from 18 nothing in the first. This is a guaranteed hope. This is something that's going to happen. You can bank on it. You can put your whole life in it, just like these men and women that we saw did. They put everything they had on this hope, and it paid out. You can, you can go to the bank on that one. Think about all the promises of the past that God has kept. As you read through the Old Testament, as you think about those stories, he's kept so many promises. He's never, he's never let any of them down. And we know that he's going to keep the ones to come because of that. So I encourage you to hope. Hope in the death of Jesus. Hope in the resurrection of Jesus. Hope in the ascension of Jesus. Hope in the return of Jesus. Hope in the victory of Jesus. Hope in our anointing as fellow heirs with Jesus. Hope in heaven to come. Hope in us being made right with God. Hope in a day when we can continually be in his presence praising his name. That is our hope, and it's a glorious hope. And when we hope these things, God can say, I am proud to be your God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that you have given us because we know we live in a hopeless world that tries to offer us so many things that won't pan out. God, I pray that today we would have faith to, to follow this hope. Lord, that this hope would just make us, it would be what everything that we go after. Lord, I pray that today you give us faith to believe what your word has said, that we would trust it, and that we would follow you and desire you above all things. In your name, amen.